Unfolding the eternal excellences, the hidden insights of the truth and the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge. The Bible says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have not pointed to your weaknesses. He says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have pointed to your strength. And this is your strength, that I am Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glory of freedom, the glimpses into eternity. The gospel is not supposed to be an assumption. It's not supposed to be just a mere presupposition. Truth is older than language, but the word of God is way deeper than any human language. And now, Apostle Grace with the word. Hebrews 6 verses 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of the word. Of the doctrine of baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And he says, and this we will do if God permit. He says, these are foundational. If we're dealing with present truth, we must address all these foundational truths according to present truth. Because when it comes to present truth, like Exodus says, honor the Sabbath. And then Paul says in Romans, ah, oh, no, you know, one man owns another day for another man owns another day and he says you know what it's all to the glory of God so if you honor one you honor if you don't honor the other don't is Paul against the Sabbath is he not against the Sabbath what is the Sabbath is it the Saturday people call Saturday in the world or the Sabbath is a deeper revelation things like that we need to go now deep into understanding the Christian doctrine somebody say amen so I said these six things are foundational and as I go into touching each one of them, you are going to be amazed. But also as well, some things must be emphasized now if we must have a clarity of understanding. So these are the principles, the foundational principles of the doctrine of Christ. The Bible says you will know of me if you know my doctrine. You will know me if you know my doctrine. So if you know the doctrine of Christ, you will know Christ. If you don't know the doctrine of Christ, then you will not know Christ. Are you hearing me? So we said, okay, I'm going to touch all of these six. Okay? And when I do, then you will understand why it's important. And today, the first one is repentance from dead works. That's the first one he spoke about. Repentance from dead works. We need to understand what is dead works. When we talk about repentance from dead works, what are we talking about? What are dead works? What do you mean when you say dead works? Now, when we are touching dead works, the most primal element idea, idea that we emphasize in defining dead works or works of any matter is conscience. Are you hearing me? The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 1, he says, now the spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, they speaking lies 
in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. When a man's conscience is seared with a hot iron, that man will give in to anything. Are you hearing me? When we're talking about repentance from dead works, we are talking about the purification of our consciences. Our consciences must be pure. Somebody shout amen. Shout amen. So when Paul speaks in Timothy, and then he says the spirit is speaking expressly, that men shall in the latter times depart from the faith and give heed. That means they hear seducing spirits talking to them and doctrines of devils, even as the doctrine of Christ. They'll speak hypocrisy in lies because their conscience is seared. Their conscience is what? Why are they speaking hypocrisy in lies? Why are they hearing doctrines of devils? Why are they hearing seducing spirits? Because their consciences are what? Seared. Now, a seared conscience, let me give you an example. Let me give you a physical example. How many of you here take very hot tea? You don't like it when it's not hot. Put up your hand and say, me, I want that. Hmm? Huh? I don't like hot tea. It burns me. When I make my tea, I have to let it cool. So when it starts to cool a bit, not cold but cool, for me that is tea. I'm a tea lover. But then there are people. Now, those of you who have put up your hands, you realize you didn't just wake up taking hot tea. It was a process. You used to take hotter, 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 until the day your throat got seared. <laughs> Isn't it? I have a friend. <laughs> they brought us tea. He took, this thing is not hot. I said, the thing is burning. But he said, no, it's not hot. It's not hot. So I know what he's saying. But me, I don't understand it because my throat is not what? Seared. It's not bad. It's not wrong. But it's a typical example that when your throat is seared, you can take hotter things than someone whose throat is not what? Seared. Some of you, your hands are seared. You can handle hot stuff and you carry it like this. Eh? And then you put it with your own hands. Some of us, already it's what? It's burning. Where I was growing up, there was an old woman who could handle coals. Manda. Yeah, she gets... Her fingers are what? They are used. Okay? Now, liken that to the conscience. For the bodies, your throat, that's okay. It's normal. It's human. But when it comes to the conscience, the conscience is the place that God speaks to. When your conscience is seared, it means that there are certain things of God that cannot cut through you. Like heat would not go through a seared heart or a seared throat. When it comes to the conscience, there are certain things that cannot cut through you. You've built a sort of resistant wall 
in your conscience against the things of God. These men's consciences were seared. And they started giving heed to seducing spirits. And then you ask me, how did that happen? This is how it happened. It began with a little derivation, a small going off of the angle. Because remember in the Christian teaching, sin is missing the mark. Isn't it? So when they say, what is sin? Biblically, they tell you sin is missing the mark. So when you miss the mark, that is sin. Now, if you have two direct lines, uh, those of you who probably used to love math, there's something they used to call angle theta. When they're near here at the beginning, they look like there are two lines that are what? Parallel to each other, right? But there's like a small angle that goes off, like a small one. Eh? That's like an angle what? Now, when these lines continue going out, what happens? They continue what? Scattering. So, when you look at distance, you start to see that there's a a little derivation, but it's not something you see directly, okay? Immediately, sometimes. Sometimes it's easy for some eyes. Some it's harder for some eyes. But consequently, there's a small little vying off. And that's how it begins. That when you start little compromises, small little things, at the end of the day, the angle becomes bigger and bigger. But that first degree of vying off, even if it's a zero point, Zero, 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 one vying off. That was the beginning. That's sin. The missing of the mark. Are you following me? Now, there are people who began well. We begin well. But because of those that teach us, because of the cultures we find, because of the things that come in our times, because of the challenges that hit us, because of the teachings we receive, because of the nurturing that we have, or some even with nature, we find ourselves sometimes going off a bit without even knowing. And no man goes off the mark without compromise. However, compromise is twofold. Okay? There is something called healthy compromise. And there is something called unhealthy compromise. Okay? Let me give you an example of a healthy compromise. One time there's a lady. She was in, I think, in her 70s. Old lady like this. I know. And then she went and bought herself a wig. You know those black, very black wigs that some women love. And so she wore a very nice dress. It was a party. And then she came to me, this old lady, and said, How do I look? Okay? Of course, in my head, if I was to be honest, <laughs> 70 for me was not the age for a wig. Okay. But at 70 for me was not the age for a what? My opinion. My what? Because when gray hair comes at a certain point, you love, you love, you just, you have to accept your gray hair. Yeah? The Bible says it's a sign of what? Wisdom. I mean, celebrate God. I wish then, if I was to advise, I would say, you know what? Why don't you go to a very nice saloon and they make your gray hair very beautiful? You understand what I'm saying? But I knew how much she had put in to buy her wig. 
And I knew exactly what her expectation was in putting on that black wig. You understand? So she asked me, how do I look? Smiling like this. And I told her, smashing. (laughs) My God. That's called healthy what? Some of you, you are not nurtured well. You are not brought up well. For me, I'm honest. You know, I'm honest. I just say the disease. That week, mm -mm. take it off. (laughs) Really? Come on. How will that change a seven-year-old woman's life? Besides, she's not waiting for a chap to make her moves on how. Let her be. She's smart in her own way. So healthy compromise there required me to tell her, Mom, you're smart, right? Because let's have peace on that. Once you fight over, she's smart in her own way. Let her be. She has invested. Healthy compromise. You get it? It's like some of you have kids at home. A kid draws a cup and it looks like a You understand what I'm saying? You can't even understand whether it's a cup or it's something else. Then you look and look and look and look. Then say, huh, what's this? Say it's cup. Oh, wow. That's so nice. This is beautiful. You're good, you know? That's what you do for kids, isn't it? But some of you, is that a cup? You drew like your father. <laughs> Is that a cup? No, 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 it's not a cup. Who told you to? Don't even draw. Do something else. Oh, your kid comes and says, can I sing for you? Hey, 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 don't sing, don't sing. Don't. Do something else, don't sing. No, come on. Just say, oh, darling, you have a very nice voice. That's called healthy what? Compromise. Then there are unhealthy compromises. A compromise that you know that when you do, you're going off and you are giving in to evil and sin and deception and things of that kind. That's unhealthy. Christianity does not tolerate unhealthy compromises. That's our faith. Now, when we vie off a little right? In unhealthy compromises. That's when we start to bleed our consciences, to wound our consciences. And sometimes we have the time to pull ourselves together and fix it. Or some of us, we just choose to go that way. And over the years then, things escalate. And before you know that, the conscience is so seared in what is wrong that at the end of the day, A man doesn't care how wrong he is. He can even justify it by scripture and any other thing of that sort. Are you following me? That is why Paul says in Acts 24, 16, he says, Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. That that's an exercise. When God says exercise yourself, It means predominantly at your space of salvation when you've just received God. You're not exercised there. It is a work in progress, but a deliberate one that you choose to exercise yourself. Exercise means that you constantly are aware of the things in your conscience that offend God and man 
and you try as much as possible, you do as much as possible by the grace of God to see that these things don't stay with you. So consciences are a deliberate exercise to keep in purity. It's not a passive thing. You don't just sit back and say, oh, you know what, this will just come. It will just happen. No, it does not just happen. There are things that God does through you. You allow the spirit of God to help you exercise yourself. That every time you are at odds with the way of the spirit, with the word of God, you quickly sniff it out and you're quick to repent or quick to forgive. That's an exercised person. So it has an effort. It comes to it. Because if it doesn't, then when you go off that angle, many things start taking place. It's like church. There are many things now that are being preached on the altar today in this dispensation that are honestly seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And some of the people who teach them, they didn't begin by teaching them, but probably they compromised. They gave in to slowly by slowly and the angle started becoming bigger and bigger because they did not take time to put a stop to some of these things. They either learned these things from men of old who taught them, and sometimes you find an anointed person or a person who is wise and they speak, and if they sow a seed in you that is not godly, some cannot say, you know, this is right, this is wrong, let me take of what's right and ignore the wrong and let God deal with his servant. Some people take it all because they lust and not hunger for the same things. And lust sometimes misleads us to even give in to things of deception and of the flesh simply because we desperately want certain things for our purpose and our behalf. And so we have challenges, we have experiences downright in history of the church where men have vied off the way of the spirit and now to even look back and see what's happening. It's so sad in our dispensation. I'll give you an example. In the early 70s, a great move was begun by our fathers then of the faith, and one of which most notable was Oral Roberts. He meant well. He taught well. The inspiration was right. The conviction was right. The teaching was right. But over time, the teaching went changing shapes and later got corrupted. Not by the men who began it, but by the generations that started coming into being. Because churches evolve, ministry evolves, processes change, history changes, mantles shift and many things. And so in another dispensation, the teaching changed. But in the innocence of the first time they are teaching about it, which was prosperity, it, the idea came in the 70s and they were teaching about prosperity. How that it is godly and Christian for a person to be prosperous. Of course, prosperity was not only in the center of money, but money was part of it. Health was part of it. Wisdom was part of it. Uh, your soul was part of it. You know, the spiritual things was part of it. You know, glory, anointing, and all these kinds of things were all part of the holistic package called prosperity. But also they emphasized mainly on the issue of money then, because the prosperity of the flesh was easy to understand through divine health. The prosperity of the soul through growing spiritually was easy to understand. Uh, you know, wisdom is okay. Uh, you know, 
and many of that stuff, there are certain things that are okay. But finances was a gray area in church history back in the day. Many people thought that it was righteous and godly to be poor. Okay? And so some men like Horror Roberts, thank God for him, came in to correct that. But when it gets into the 90s there, it changed form. That's about 20 years after. It changed form. And then prosperity took on another turn and understanding. And it was abused. Yet it began well. But why did we get to a point where finances had to be emphasized in the body of Christ? You can say, why did it come? And some people even write off the whole story and demonize the idea. Why did the Horror Roberts talk about finances? No, you need to understand where they came from. If you're a student of church history, you will understand how this happens. In about 350 AD is when now we have what we call in church history the birth of imperial Christianity. Constantine has had a vision, sees a cross, he has a voice telling him, you'll rule through this, gives his life to Christ as a believer, takes over Rome as an emperor, and when he takes over Rome as an emperor, before that, the church has been persecuted, the temple has been broken and seized, decimated by 70 AD. Christianity is under persecution from Nero to Diocletian. Ten emperors are all persecuting the church. Years have evolved after 70 AD. Persecutions have continued after 70 AD. And then, uh, of course, during that time, for an emperor to become Christian, to be Christian, it was as though the church had won a great battle because many were going to come from the underground and the catacombs and then they were to come on the scene. And Christianity, which was persecuted a few years ago, now is an accepted norm and the norms and the emperors, the princes and kings are embracing it. It was a special time of church history. So... During that time, of course, Constantine wants to build himself a story that is different from the existent empires that have been seen. Of course, there was a church in existence, and that was the Catholic Church in Rome. Okay? Now, before that, the Catholic Church in Rome was a very pure move. It submitted and yielded to all levels of piety. It was God-fearing principles, doctrine, practices, the theology was systematic, they were lovers of God, they were united in the spirit, that's why it was called Catholic Church, because the word Catholic means universal, they believed in the unity of the faith and in the oneness of the Son, are you following me? But, when the imperial Christianity comes in, now church is marrying state, because now the emperor is Christian. And so how do we run the empire? By Christianity. And if you're a reader of church history, you'll realize that church movements have left the worst records in leadership history when it comes to national level. And there's a reason why. I mean, it's not only that. Go through, read the story of the Puritans uh, when they tried to take over in Europe to lead nations. Many of them fail to understand the God of a nation. They made him so personal that they could not extend the heart and mind of God concerning nations. And the government failed. Christian governments have failed. 
and secular government sometimes are success. Because sometimes when we get into places of leadership, many people are not taught how to run nations from a godly perspective. You understand? I'm not talking about from a Christian perspective. We are not supposed to run nations from a Christian perspective. We're supposed to run nations from a godly perspective. The nation is bigger, way bigger in understanding when you study it. Of course, consequently, the Christian is behind it. Are you hearing me? But not all people in the nation are Christian. Yet all are people of God. You understand what I'm saying? So, yes, we give men God. Because Christianity sometimes can become religion. Sometimes. Sometimes it can become a stumbling block. Because some of us who claim to be Christian, we don't understand the mandate of Christianity. Remember, God has never called us Christian. In the book of Acts, the Bible says, at Antioch, they were called Christians. Because there was much teaching. Men saw and called them Christian. But God's identity with us is not Christian. God's identity is sons and daughters. Praise God. So anyway, that's a long one. I could, it, it could be something debatable. But godliness is another thing. A nation is run on godliness. Men bringing the relationship of God and Christ to men. As of whether they relate with the idea Christian or not, that's for them to choose. There are many people who cannot even call themselves Christians because of what that name now means in certain circles. You understand? That's why I prefer using born again. Okay? Now, then Constantine wants to write his own story and history. And before we know that, he has separated. Uh, the capital then was Rome. He shifts it to Byzantine, then establishes Constantinople, the city. And then the birth of what you present day, or us, we call the orthodoxy faith, the orthodox faith. Uh, it was a split. And when this became an orthodox faith, the church in Rome became the Roman Catholic church. That was where the problem came. It was okay when it was just the Catholic church in Rome. But when it became the Roman Catholic, it means that the interests of Rome preceded the interests of the unity and Catholicism of the church. And then it became religious. And then by 590, we have the birth of the papacy. When the papacy comes into existence, the story of history changes. We see histories of popes and all of these things are on record. I'm not saying things that are not recorded. I'm talking of things that are recorded in church history. And not even the Roman Catholic Church can doubt that they then emerge places of selfishness and self-seeking ideas of men. We start to see crusaders going, fighting to loot gold and silver for the church because they are fighting the heathens. We start to see ideas coming into churches like paying indulgences. And if you want God to favor you, build this, bring that, bring that money. So salvation is now through indulgences, you know, salvation is through, you know, venerations of Mary and all these other things. And then we start to have ideas of purgatory, purgatory, right? If you want to go to purgatory, if you want your beloved uh, to be preserved from purgatory to heaven, there's certain monies you give. And then one thing leads to another. 
And then the Roman Catholic Church starts amassing money to spaces where families were paying money to become popes, paying for their children and bribing people for the place of papacy because papacy represented political power and money. And then the power of ministers then, the glory of men of God then shifted from the anointing and the demonstration of God's power and wisdom and it went into political influence and money. And that is why I want ministers who are going to become ministers tomorrow who are ministers. When your power is in who you know and what you have physically, then you've lost it already. Your power should be in who you have and what he has put in you. Somebody shout hallelujah. If I have clothes on my body and bread to eat on my table and the anointing, that's all I need. Nobody outside should be your justifier to think that because I know this. And that's what happened in the earlier churches. And uh, even the church is supposed to work with government. But we are not supposed to work with government as taking advantage of political offices for us to build our own names like many men of God do. Government is supposed to be a servant of people. Government serves people, right? The government of the people, for the people, by the people. That's the essence of democracy, isn't it? And the church is supposed to be an active partner in helping the government run its businesses. You understand what I'm saying? So I'm not against you doing politics or joining political parties or serving in politics and positions. Those are all okay if the end is the purpose of Christ and the gospel, the example to set for the proclamation of his name. But if it's for personal gain that you may be exalted beyond measure and that the self will go above men, then you have lost it already. That's what happens. The church got married to the state and the state got married to the church and then the purposes are controlling economies and states, kingdoms and kings. They curse and put one up other. They befriend the strongest countries that could fight. And then these countries uh, start to pay allegiance to the papacy and the order. And then before that, many manipulations are there. If you have sinned, if you want to be forgiven, give this much to the church. You know, you'll be forgiven. This will be done for you. And then before we know that, all different reasons that are supposed to be free by Christ, all of them now start to have price tags. Some of you who are in Uganda at the time the Pope came, if you remember how much were the rosaries? Why 100,000? Because the more you buy, the more favor you get. Before what? The Lady of Light and God and Jesus Christ. So the more you buy, so people bought rosaries at 100,000 MTN SIM cards were bought at 50,000. You understand the excitement that the Pope was here and that all proceeds go to Vatican. In fact, if you go and read on the internet, Vatican has enough money to run their programs for the next 300 years without any money coming in. That's how much money is with the Roman Catholic Church. They have enough money to run the whole Roman Catholic Church program across the world for the next 300 years. Vatican is represented in the UN as a nation. Yet it's a small little thing here. You understand why? Because it's political power and money. I'm not against religion here, but I want to open your eyes to something. You get it? But how the money was gotten in the debts, in the sacrifices, in the manipulations of men, then other groups of people started to see the wickedness 
of how money was given and how popes were fighting for positions and how families were paying money uh, to get their children to papacy and how some sold purposes and bought them back with money. Many of them started separating themselves from that kind of order. And that was then the birth of what you call the monks who lived in monasteries. They lived in a cave. Some lived in stone caves, deserts, and they separated themselves from the pleasures of this world and the love of the things of this world. And they say, you know, we have nothing to do with wealth and money and everything because whatever it represents, it has been grossly abused. And so there was also the thought that maybe when you attach yourself to money, you are compromised into being like the rest of them. So many of those groups of the monks and that whole like, guys, they maintained a certain lifestyle. They lived with bare minimum, only clothes on them and food. And they didn't care about anything at all. And then those are the people that now start leading movements of men which are tired of the rot then that was in the church during that period. Are you seeing where it is coming from? St. Patrick's were monks. The list is endless. Uh, many of them uh, preserved the gospel in that. And so as the movements are coming, we don't forget that every time money comes into the church, Somehow certain people got so corrupted by it and were consumed by it and it became the God that the Bible talks about. Remember the Bible says you cannot serve two masters at a go. It says you cannot serve God and mammon because in this instance spiritually, money can become a God easily. It's already a God spiritually, but it's a small God. So it can become a God to you if you don't understand how to respond. To money. Are you following? So, through movements are coming. Yes, revivals are coming. The Great Awakenings, the First, the Second, the Lehman's Revivals, and all of these things. But we are not addressing the issue of money. Is church supposed to be rich? Or are we supposed to abandon all wealth and live poor and live with God? You get it? And now when the gospel leaves Europe and then transitions through the Puritans into America... In America, they're not dealing with religion. They're dealing with doctrine, really. It's Jacobus Arminius versus Calvin. It's, I think this and I think that. But that's all right. Because they were dealing with doctrine. Not much of England, for example, that was dealing with the Roman Catholic kind. Because if you read about, for example, the Anglican Church, it's a Roman system with a Lutheran doctrine. You see that? The same as it is with Rome. Because Rome is a system. Islam builds and the Roman system. It's a way of system of life. When the gospel goes in America, it was not built on Roman system. That's why the churches in the United States were a success because they didn't deal so much with religion as it was in Europe. Are you following? But again, the fundamental question comes, is money evil or not? Of course, it's true that, that some of our people back in the day have built universities, you know, Yale, Harvard, Preston, all of that is good. Yes, that is for the benefit of the public. But is money good for the minister, the believer, the man of God? Or does money corrupt? You understand? That's why you even used to hear prayers of God, don't give me too much to forget you. I mean, if you know that 100 million will keep me loving you, don't give me more because I don't want to lose you. Because then we had an issue. The question still stayed fundamental in the church. Was money good or not good? So through all of these revivals, the moves of God are moving, the church is being built, but we still have fundamental questions. By the time it gets into America, now again, the founding fathers of the faith have questions. If the church cannot teach men how to make money and also manage money, right, 
to build its own facilities, schools, universities, places of worship, create sources of income and teach men how to make money. What happens? They are going to be reliant on government. And if you rely on government, it means that government then will determine who you are and what you do. Because they are the ones who give you money. So they have to determine who you are and what you do with the money that they give you. You understand what I'm saying? And remember, if we go back, when I talk about the five uh, basic uh, principles understood in the making of wealth from Jewish culture, because you need to see money the way God used to deal with it when he was dealing with the Jews. The Abrahams were rich men and all these guys. When you go back to Jewish culture, the understanding of making wealth is quite different from the way the world has presented it. But one of the five fundamental pillars of making wealth is limited government. Meaning that make enough money as a church, get enough money as a church such that you will not have much interference in the affairs of your worship. Because if government is there, then it will interfere. Your what? Your worship. Because it gives you the money. You're now like an NGO and now kids are going to go and study in Bible school like they're doing a, a normal professional job and they'll come teaching in church, spiritual matters, but they are simply professionals like certain areas in Europe. So limited government is key. How much can we keep government out of our affairs by building our own stuff, establishing our own treasuries, and then spending them accountably to the people that give that money, and then consequently build a church, build hospitals, build schools, build colleges, build businesses, conglomerates, so they can now look to us to helping them. That was the idea of why we need prosperity financial in the church. So I think later on as the movements are coming, 1901, Charles Parham, uh, the Pentecostal movement, the Azusa Street Revivals, the Holiness Movements, the Charismatic Movements, the Healing Days, the Word of Faith Movements, all of these things are taking place. But we still carry the fundamental question, what is the opinion of money concerning the church? So Oral Roberts then and his group then come and say, look, we have to tell people it is godly to be rich. That Abraham was not poor. Isaac was not poor. Jacob was not poor. Jesus was not poor. He made himself. You understand? So they started teaching about financial prosperity. But also in the earlier 70s, they were stressing other things, but most importantly financial. Because the church needed to be liberated from the arm of government and men coming into their affairs because you need from them. That is why I feel sorry for pastors who go to government to beg. We are the ones supposed to be giving government. You understand? But in the early 90s, it was abused. The whole idea of finances was abused. And then a few men started going off the angle because of their personal selfishness. But they were the leaders of the movement. And because they were the leaders of the movement, everybody started to go along because they were leading the pack. We thought maybe if this man is on the the front line as a pioneer of the move of God in his dispensation and is telling us that this happens like this, then he's right. But certain sane people kept quiet and also had unhealthy compromises. And now before you know that, you're switching on a television and a man is saying, when I was called here to preach the gospel, I got a vision and God spoke to me. He gave me a number. He gave me a number eight, eight. And he said that we are in a season of eight. We are in a paradigm shift. Whatever paradigm shift means. <laughs> but it's always a season of a shift. 
You understand? And then certain semantics are added there because there are people who think that speaking a very nice language is depth, right? If you have a lot of vocabulary, yeah? And they say in the spirit realm, things are shifting. The tonic plates are changing for our favor. What are tectonic plates again? Whatever that means. But you understand. So God tells me. I saw a number. He says, for those of you that need healing right now, get to the phone right now. The number is eight. and probably there's guys here that can give millions. If you got $8 million, God says, get that money. Don't think of anything. Don't be deceived right now. But you understand what I'm saying? And somebody says, if you want your healing right now, you're going to get a hold of a $1,000 seed. I want to share about the $1,000 seed. I had a sick child. Then he gets his personal conviction. And my boy was dying of leukemia. And as I prayed, the Lord told me, get a thousand dollar a seed and give it to a man of God. And I got that money. I tell you. <laughs> my boy was healed. And people in the street say, yeah! hallelujah, glory, glory, glory. I say there's a power in the $1,000 seed. You could be there right now and you're struggling with a disease, depression and anxiety. Your family's failing. Your relationships are failing. God wants to set you free. Somebody reach out the call on the screen. There's a number on the screen right there. You can call them right now. And then people start calling. And then they give the $1,000 seed for the miracle. What? The Bible says, if any man asks, And believe that he has received what he has asked for. Then he shall have a petition. Of course, there are instances where God can prompt for something of a miracle. But those are supposed to be personal convictions, not corporate teaching. You get my point? Does this God speaking to you, not the man of God telling you what God is telling you. And so now the prosperity gospel changed. Now everything is sold for. Your marriage, your what, your what, your what, your what, your what. Everything is what? Sold for. Now, us who don't talk about money, they call us fake. You understand? Now even healing. Is based on money. If a man doesn't have a thousand dollars, they are going to bury their child. Angle Theta. Like a small derivation that began with one man and has eaten up a whole generation. That's money. What of the others? Today now, the house of God is a transaction. Now things are even sold on television. How can you sell a someone? How? Why would you sell what's really given? Why do you think we have an app and I've put all the someone's free of charge there? Why? Because it was freely given. Why should I sell the message? And the time is going to come when our free messages are more expensive than the ones that are sold. Watch. Our voices are going to be high. Why should you sell the message? 
Even when they were selling CDs, I asked them, how much do you need to make a CD? They told me 3,000. Then charge that. Charge your expenses, but don't charge men for the message. We cannot charge you for the message. I will never charge men for the message. Why should I charge men for the message? Why should you charge men for the message? Give it free of them. Just give it free. Give it free. Don't sell a message. You cannot sell the message, the gospel, if possible. Men are supposed to receive that free. How? Just give it. God will provide for you either way. He will. Praise God. And so, but that begins when the consciences begin to die. I know men. I have called preachers before. And a guy tells you, if you don't send half of my honorarium, I'm not going to come. A man tells you, if you don't send my honorarium, I'm not coming. I tell you, stay there. If you don't give this much a seed, I'm not going to what? What? One time I went to a certain nation and the man asked me, also, how much honorarium do you want? I said, no, you're supposed to give me honor. I'm not supposed to demand it. You give what you want. Even if you don't give me. I'm a man of God. I'm a what? Man of God. Praise God. He'll provide. But now people even state their amounts. If you don't give it, you understand? But how many other compromises have been now in the way? And do you know, the people who are taught simply, they give more than the people you manipulate. Me, I've seen it. I can testify this. Some people don't even understand how you people just give. Because people are led by God. Are you hearing me? People are led by God. They hear him. Let's give them God. And let us be faithful as ministries too. We should give our tithes and our first fruits as a ministry. Let's let men pray. And God will lead them. But manipulation. But that's money. But there are many other aspects that seducing spirits have brought into and doctrines of devils that have brought into the church of Jesus Christ. You understand what I'm saying? 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 12 says that our rejoicing is this, that the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversations in the world and more abundantly to you. Word. That's the joy that we have, that our conscience is clear concerning godly sincerity and simplicity. That we have lived our conversations in the world more abundantly toward you in that way. Not in fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Every Christian should joy in the purity of conscience. Even if they say you're this, if your conscience is clear before God, it's clear. It's clear. It's your defense. Are you hearing me? It's your defense. But the place of the purity of your conscience to keep a clear and pure conscience is godly. It is one of the most... Now, something has come now into what we call grace. And we are starting to see that seducing spirits are working through the message that is supposed to be pure. And some of us use our liberty for vice. Some of us live without accountability toward God and toward man. Again, as I'm speaking these things, I want you to separate two things. One side has guilt and condemnation. The other side has conviction. 
I am not here to make any man feel guilty or to condemn any man. But conviction is key for the Christian faith. Christianity has not lost conviction. And some people think that the absence of guilt and condemnation means that there is no conviction. When you lose conviction because we have taught you out of condemnation and guilt, then your conscience is dying every day. The teaching of the grace gospel and the law is there to help purify your conscience. In Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 5 and 7, he says, now the end of the commandment, the end of the law is charity. What is that? Love. That means if you say that you're not under the law but under grace, love is a key factor in this. And he says, out of a what? A pure what? Heart, comma, and of a good what? Conscience and of faith and fame. And he says, from which some swerving off this, because they're still in the law, have gone into vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, not knowing what they say, nowhere of their farm. Why? Because they have not understood the difference between law and grace. The law and grace. The end of the law, the end of the commandment is that you must have love out of a pure heart and you must have a good conscience and faith that is unfeigned. That's a man who represents the grace gospel. But some of us in the preaching of the gospel, our consciences then are dying because we have not really understood what grace is. The gospel is not there to condemn you. For the Bible says that there now there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus for the law of the life-giving spirit in Christ hath set them free from the law of sin and death. So there's no condemnation. Don't feel condemned in the things I'm speaking. Don't condemn yourself. Two, guilt is a stain spiritually. And if you keep guilt in you, you'll never walk out of something. That is why there are people who are always guilty. God, I'm sorry I did this. But then you find yourself doing it more. But yeah, I'm sorry you're doing more because the spot of guilt cannot take sin out. It only shows you how big the sin is, but also imposes power over you to continue in the sin. There are people who are guilty of what they do, but they can't come out because they have a guilty stain. The grace gospel is there to remove your guilt and condemnation. So in everything I'm saying, don't feel condemned and don't feel guilty, but feel convicted. The faith requires conviction because conviction does not look at your past. Conviction looks at the future. I am here, but where should I be? It forgets the past. I'm not even talking about what you did last week or today. Even if you did something wrong this morning, that's not my business. I'm looking at where you're going. Because conviction is, I am here, but I should be there. What should I do to be a should? Should be. Should be. Now, there are things some of us do. And this one, every man in this room is guilty. If you're a believer and you've been walking with Christ. We have been guilty of this. Are you hearing me? And could condemn ourselves of this. But let's let go of the condemnation and guilt of this. But take the responsibility. In First Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9. Now, Paul gives us that warning, okay, that all of us must understand. He says, God does care when you use your freedom, 
your grace message carelessly in a way, listen, that leads a Christian still vulnerable to those old associations to be thrown off track. The next verse says, for instance, say, you flaunt your freedom by going to a banquet thrown in honor of idols where the main course is meat sacrificed to idols. He says, isn't there a great danger if someone's still struggling over this issue, someone who looks up to you as knowledgeable and mature sees you go into that banquet? Question. And all of us here, don't put lights on someone. Uh-uh. Put it on you. Don't look at her. Ah, I think now they are having <laughs> this guy. Uh-uh. Don't think of who did what last week. You put this light on you. Because idols is relative. It can mean many things. We have many idols. That's why it says little children stay away from idols. Stay away from the appearance of evil. Anything that appears evil, keep away. We have found ourselves doing things and in places where if the vulnerable see or have experienced, then we stumble them to the falling. So that's what he's asking you. He says, if a person who sees you there, but is struggling over the issue, a man has a drinking problem, and then he comes to church, and then he starts, you know, getting straight, he's stopping to drink, and then tomorrow, for some reason, he's misled or he's looking for a friend in a bar, and then he finds you in a bar. And he's still vulnerable. He's still struggling with a drink. And then he finds you in the bar. What will he do? If a man had a problem with his body and he was sleeping around and doing all these kinds of things. And then he finds you doing it. What happens? To us who are knowledgeable and mature. Again, I said, remove the torch from anyone. Put it on you. (laughs) Conviction, not what? Condemnation. I'm not condemning you. These things are also in the New Testament and in the grace gospel. Are you following what I'm saying? If there's something that I have had sorrow before God, is God, if I have done anything that stumbles a man, I'm sorry. Because how can we know God and stumble men? Me, I'm sorry. Me. I pray you are. Because today we have men whose consciences are so seared that even when they're doing what's wrong, they don't recognize that it's wrong. Because they're under what? Grace. Let's continue. The danger is that he, that person, will become terribly confused, maybe even to the point of getting mixed up himself in what his conscience tells him is wrong. What's wrong? Because you're doing it, I'm doing it. What's wrong? You understand what I'm saying? eh? Again, you're not condemned. But we must understand this. Okay? Now he continues to say, Christ gave up his life for that person. Wouldn't you at least be willing to give up going to dinner for him? Because as you say, it doesn't really make any difference. But it does make a difference if you hurt your friend terribly, risking his eternal ruin. When you hurt your friend, you hurt who? Christ. 
a free meal here and there isn't worth it at the cost of even one of these weak ones. It's not worth it. God help us. We have been stumbled and we stumble. That's why I tell Christians, what business do you have going in a bar, in a club, being in places that you know will stumble? Again, I'm not condemning you. I'm convicting you as I'm convicting myself. You get my point? Eh? Because we are all flesh. Eh? And if you're here and you're visiting, everything they're speaking me, I'm holy. Wait. will stone you. <laughs> but what I'm trying to tell us here is, brethren, even in the grace message, these things are serious. We must not give occasion to the flesh. And if we are struggling, we have to seek help. Serious help. If your body is funny, seek help. Seek what? But don't seek a justification because now we see a generation of people who justify what is what? What is wrong? It's wrong to live with a woman when you're not married. You get it? But some of you even worsen it and even host people from the church. Who know? You get my point? It's wrong to open your zip before you're married. It's wrong. Admit that we have a problem and we pray. You get my point? Your skirt should be long to cover you until that day. You understand what I'm saying? We can't just continue transacting, but we are under grace. No. Are you hearing me? What? Conviction. Let us evaluate our what? Ourselves. If we have any needs, we seek what? Help. But some of us are justifying it. We don't even have shame anymore. You get my point? Of course, having children out of wedlock, it's not good. Kakati, now you want to say that under grace, it's right? It's not. We are not condemning you. So don't condemn anyone here. But be better. Move on. That mistake was there. Probably someone has even done worse. By the way, some of you have even done worse. Because all sin is what? Is sin. If you've hated a brother, you've murdered. How many people have you killed? And then you're against Connie. But you're killing people every day. You, you're worse. You even kill. Conviction, not what? Oh, okay. Let us spell the acts of the flesh. Galatians 5.19. They amplified. Let us read them such that we are clear. Such that if you fall under there, you just repent. No condemnation. Conviction. What? Conviction. Because we are all a work in what? Yes. Now, the doings, the practices of flesh are what? Clear. And what? They are obvious. They are what? Number one. Read it again. Immorality. Number two. Impurity. Number three. And in this sense, it can be in talk and even dressing. About Uganda. Next. Idolatry. Uh-huh. Sorcery. Uh-huh. Enmity. Obuchai. Uh-huh. Strife. Uh-huh. 
Jealousy, uh-huh, anger. Now, some people think that a person who is jealousy and angry is better off than the person who is sleeping around. You're the same. You're the what? You're the same. Please, don't be more righteous. Mm-hmm. Let's continue. Next. Selfishness. Uh-huh. Divisions. Then decisions. Me, I'm for this one. Me, I'm for this one. You understand? Party spirits. Those are factions and sects with peculiar opinions and heresies. You understand? Uh-huh. Envy. Uh-huh. There's some guy who said, you have never seen the Bible refusing people to drink. It's carnal. Drunkenness is carnal. It's carnal. It is what? It is carnal. Praise God. Uh-huh. Cursing and the like. And he says, I what? I warn you beforehand, just I did previously, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What? Galatians chapter 5? I thought it was in Exodus. Paul is speaking. You understand what I'm saying? So, why am I insisting on this? Men and women of God, we have to examine ourselves. Don't point... Because if we point at you, Guate, we might bury you. Don't what? Don't point fingers. Put it on you. Take responsibility and seek help. Because we're all a work in what? But we cannot be funny in the name of the message. If you're funny, you're just funny. But don't put it on the message. Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't put it on the what? On the message. We need to have generations that can also write history. Want to see our girls also get married that they are still... God, help us. You understand what I'm saying? We need to write another story. You understand? Now, that's concerning the flesh. But also, there's a place of dead works that is not pertaining the flesh. That is doctrinal. In Hebrews... Chapter 9, verses 12. The Bible says, He went once all into the Holy of Holies, that's the Amplified, not by virtue of the blood of goats and calves, by which to make reconciliation between God and man, but by His own blood, having found and secured a complete redemption and everlasting release. That's Jesus Christ. And for if the mere sprinkling of unholy and defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls, with the ashes of a burnt heifer, is sufficient for the purification of the body, how much more surely shall the blood of Christ, who by virtue of his eternal spirit, his own pre-existent divine personality, has offered himself as an unblemished sacrifice to God, purify our consciences from dead works and lifeless observances to serve ever the living God. Now, the word has come back here. Dead works. The purification of dead works and lifeless observances to serve the living God. This is another kind of consciences that are impure and are defiled. How is it? There are people who are under the law who think that by doing the works of the law, you're what? You're justified. You get it? 
that because I didn't steal, I didn't kill, I didn't do this, I didn't, therefore I'm right. No, you're not right before God because of what you have done. You are right because of what Christ has done. You are the righteousness of God. So I can gladly tell you that even if you messed up last night, you are the righteousness of God. That is why we don't condemn in this ministry. We don't put guilt trips on men in this ministry. If you do your worst, you get it? Because it's not what we do that makes us right before God. He has given the right sacrifice through Christ because he is unblemished. He has purified our consciences from dead works and lifeless observances. In other words, I don't go to God thinking, I do this and then I please him. I do this and then he becomes happy. And then I do this and then he gets mad. No, God will never get mad at you. He loves you the same. Whether you did or you didn't, he loves you the same. And now the confusion of Christians. You find that you're still struggling in this area that I was talking about, but the anointing of God is still flowing on you. And some people think that when the anointing is flowing, therefore God justifies you. And in the justification, which is okay, because it is godly, some people think that these things are okay to do. Because the anointing has not departed, and the gifting is still there. And the growth is there. And the money is coming. And the joy is still there. And you're still healthy. Nothing has touched you. So therefore, I think this is not a big deal to God. Now, we need to bring that reconciliation. There is a blood of Christ, unblemished sacrifice at the cross that was there to purge your conscience from dead works that you might serve the living God so you know that there is nothing you need to do to be the righteousness of God, to earn favor, to earn grace. It's only faith in God. So those things are catered off. But also, keep the conscience of purifying your flesh. You get my point? Now, the righteousness imputed, the justification through faith, the grace of God given us does not take away our responsibility in this life too. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. You get my point? So we are not justified by what we do, yet it's expedient that as our justification in Christ comes, that results into living right. That's the grace gospel. So dead works can be either things you do in the flesh that are not godly or things you do and assume that by doing those things you please God. Both of those are dead works. So men who are operating under the flesh operate with these envying, strifes and what? Enmity. Some men are not here but they are under the law. And because they are under the law, their works are dead because they think that their works justify them before God. And so dead works is not only what is dead in the flesh, but also here, dead works most deeply is doctrinal, where you think that by doing all of those good things, you'll be justified and accepted by God and pleasing him more. No, that's not what pleases and justifies you. You're justified through faith. The righteousness of God is upon all who believe for there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely through the redemption that is in Christ. Somebody shout hallelujah. So 
some are struggling in the flesh, but some are under the law and they think that what they do is what makes them right. No. Whatever you've done doesn't change your position before God. That's why I don't condemn you. You're still the right. He loves you. He's going to, he's everything is going to fulfill all he has promised in your life in spite of this. But also, <laughs> fix this. Because that's why he died. Praise God. Just pray. Just pray. Talk to God. Just talk to God. Talk to God. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend. Who would have thought the Lamb could rescue the
that they have not walked out. On the things concerning you. No man in this room can say that in the flesh they have not erred. No man here can say that they have not made mistakes in the flesh. But what we need is the purification of our consciences. May our consciences be alive to what is pleasing to you. And may sorrow come so easily and quickly. May we be ashamed of the things of darkness and love the things of light. Let no man feel condemned here or judged. Let no man go back with a guilty strip. Let every man see your love in the things you instruct us into. And God, we will be better. And thank you for grace. Because we are only standing because of grace. We can only serve because of grace. We are accepted in your presence because of your grace. Your love and condition and your forgiveness. Your mercies that are new every morning. Thank you for the righteousness that you've imputed us in by faith. And that we know that before you, we are at our best. We are perfect even in weakness, even as you perfect us. So help us respond to grace and love, that our convictions stay alive to the things we must be, and that somehow we receive strength to walk the life that is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, say amen. If you're here, and you've never given your life to Christ, and you feel that the message you've heard tonight is convicting you to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're going to repeat these words after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I've heard your message. I believe in my heart that you died and rose again. And I confess with my mouth that you are Lord and born again. Amen. God bless you. The message you have just heard was brought to you by Fenero Ministries International. For more information, contact us on telephone number 041-466-4291 or email us at fenerocompala at gmail.com. You can also find us on the web at www.fenero.org. Or better still, feel free to join us every Thursday for our weekly fellowships at Uma Multipurpose Hall from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. You can also catch the live stream at livestream.com slash Fenero. Fenero. Make manifest.